My name is Rick okay. Napier, the CEO at Real People USA, based in California. And for people who listen to the show, you know we talk about uh, interesting subjects and we have interesting guests. Uh, today we have Arpin, who's a former public school and charter school teacher here in California. And I will tell you that he is well informed on the subject matter of public schools here in California. And uh, we met at a local coffee shop in Sacramento, California. And so without further delay, I would like to welcome Arpin to the Real People USA show. Hello, Arpin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good morning, Rick. You know, I, I want to also add for political candidates and people listening, they always ask, well, how do you meet people? And I always, I always tell them that you just have to say hello to people and you know, sometimes the subjects are, you know, things you want to talk about. Sometimes it's just, hello, hi, bye, it was nice to meet you. So I met Arpin at a coffee shop, and he had an appliance or an attachment hardware item that attached to his iPhone, and that's how the conversation began. So, Arpin, I want to ask you these, these series of questions because, like I mentioned, you are well-informed on the subject matter of public school education uh, you have a physics, a physics degree, and I'll let you talk more about that. But here's my first question. Please tell our listening audience who is ARPIN, like your place of birth, education level, and work experience. Sure thing. I was born in San Leandro, California. My parents moved around throughout the country, so I had a chance to live up in Washington as a kid. Then in Kansas City, I got to see and live what real racism looked like at that time in Kansas City. Moved back down to Southern California, lived there for a while, got to experience more racism, but more on the Latino side of things. And then moved over to St. Louis, Missouri, and had the chance to go to one of the country's leading public schools at the time. I went there, it was ranked number one by a magazine out of all public schools in the country. So I had a very privileged public school education. I'm a strong believer in public school. So I'm not coming at this from a perspective of distaste for public schools. I had one of the best public school educations uh, one could have in this country. I went to grad school for theoretical physics. And during grad school, word got out during my graduate lab courses that I was pretty good at teaching. So the department asked me if I could become a lecturer. This was very unusual as it was because I was a grad student. I hadn't yet graduated with, uh, with my master's degree. And so I started lecturing students in physics, entry-level physics. And I discovered that a lot of my students weren't able to do fractions. So I looked into this problem and discovered that there was a major shortage of math and science teachers in this country, big problems. So I decided to teach in the, some of the most difficult school districts in the Bay Area. I did that for about four years. Then I started my own private schools in the Bay Area, ran those for about five years. Those private schools were Quantum Camp. We had two locations, one up in Berkeley, one down in Mountain View. We generated $1.8 million in revenue. I started an ed tech company named Leaf Education, where we hit number one in multiple app stores 
in education throughout the, uh, throughout the world. And then I was master teacher of science at Fortune Schools, which is a charter, charter management organization, a CMO. And I was overseeing about 100 teachers as we rolled out a new hands-on science program. So that's my background. Excellent, excellent. And that is more information that you told me on the first day that we met. So uh, I would say you are well-informed and a definitely a subject matter expert. So here's my next question, Arvin. What motivated you to enter the teaching profession? You, you mentioned uh, you saw some uh, deficiencies in math and science, but please talk about that a little more. Yeah, Rick, when I started looking into this problem in grad school, I, I was trying to figure out why are my students struggling with fractions? What's going on here? They, they couldn't do fractions, they couldn't handle percentages. And if you can't do those things, the phys physics course is going to be pretty difficult. What I discovered is that nationally, there was a 40% dropout rate. So that was one big problem. But there was a second problem. Clearly, the students I'm working with in college, they had graduated high school, right? So they went to college with the expectation that they were going to get a degree. So I looked into what's happening in college. Turns out there's a at that time, a 50% dropout rate of all people who ever go to college, 50% won't get a college degree or any post-secondary degree. Post-secondary being anything past high school. That's 50%. Now that rate has dropped down to about 44, 46%. And what's more surprising about that rate, as I researched this, is that that rate can be found even at universities like UC Berkeley. You see Santa Cruz, they have the same dropout rate. 44% of all the students who go to UC Berkeley will not get a degree. Now, something very fundamentally wrong is occurring here. And we can blame the colleges. But, of course, you have to look at what's happening in the public schools. And because I was teaching college students, what I saw was a very direct problem with students being able to handle simple types of computation. Fractions should not be anywhere remotely a problem for anybody in college, yet it was a problem for at least half of my college students. So that's, wow. that's, what, prompt, that's what prompted me, Rick, to get into education in the first place. And I, I decided, look, if I'm going to do this, Where's the, the greatest shortage of math and science teachers? My, my background, not just in physics. I graduated with physics degree, but I also majored in math. I didn't get that degree, but I was a math and physics major. So I got credentialed. I'm a single subject credential teacher in both mathematics and in physics. So I went into the Oakland School District, found a charter school in a very, very rough neighborhood start teaching there, then from there went to Richmond, another uh, rough neighborhood. That's, that was my goal, is to offer students a chance to be with somebody who was well-trained in both math and in physics, and to give them something that they can get from most other teachers. Yeah, you mentioned uh, math and science. I think I shared with you that uh, my grandfather, who was a home builder in Florida, I used to go to his job sites back when they didn't have daycare, 
and for about four hours on certain days, he, he would teach me how to read one of those wooden rulers. And so when I had my, my children, my wife and I had our children, I started them to learn about math and computation and, and logic around three years old. So just to make a long story short, all three of my sons are working in, you know, computational uh, careers where math and science are uh, definitely needed. Here's my, uh, my next question. Now, when we talked, you said that you had recently left the teaching profession. Please inform our listeners what led you to leave teaching. Well, I, I would say the teaching profession right now is a complete disaster on multiple levels. Being a teacher, you're not treated as a professional. That's problem number one. Uh, but when we look at things, measurables, things like test scores, uh, we brought, I brought this up in our conversation while we're talking in the cafe. Test scores are worse today than when I started. My students in a very difficult neighborhood were more equipped to handle the classroom environment than my students from a suburban, a very well-to-do suburban neighborhood out in Cal uh, the Sacramento area. And, and that's, that's representative of the, the overall decline in the capacity of students to handle things. And when we look at test scores, test scores are, there's been two adjustments that California has done. Each adjustment has made it, made these standardized tests that are supposedly here to help the students. These, they've adjusted these tests to make them easier for students to perform better. So while California, I think we're ranked about 42 right now, with, with these downgrades in the, in the testing efficacy, we've made it easier for students to achieve better on this test. So that 42 ranking out of all 50 states, I think that's pretty generous. I think if we were to take, do a, a nationally standardized test, I don't think we'd see that California is ranked 42 in this country. I'd, I'd expect, uh, as we were ranked 49.50 for a long time before these downgrades, that's, that's where California was. I, I would suspect that's where we would actually be. We'd, we would be competing with Louisiana right now in terms of who offers the worst education in this country. Wow. Wow. And I know uh, we went on to, to discuss some of the uh, parameters or some of the, 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 uh, uh, the metrics of what causes kids to fail, and I was shocked when you said that uh, the kids in the urban areas of Oakland had better test scores than people living in suburbia, suburban Sacramento. And so you that, had mentioned that's entirely true. Yeah, uh, great. The numbers, great. so we can get just so we can get some numbers out there. When I was in West Oakland, my students came in all from difficult situations, all of them. They scored a 27th percentile on their mathematics. Cut to 15 years later 
in a well-to-do suburban school, students are scoring at a 23rd percentile. And when I go, went to the administration and I challenged them on this and I said, what is your plan? Rick, they have no plan. The same, I was over at River City and I brought this up. Same situation, they had a 22 percentile. A 22 percentile, same question to the administration there. What is your plan? Rick, they have no plan. There is no plan at any of these public schools to fix any of these problems. It's unacceptable. Imagine running a small business like this. You, you couldn't stay in business. You'd be drummed out of business. The only reason that these public schools are not out of business today is because they have a monopoly, an effective monopoly on what we call public education. Wow. And you went on to say, you, to describe some of the living conditions of, um, of urban students versus sub suburban students. Please share why perhaps the suburban student is, is disproportionately <laughs> are doing worse than the urban student. Well, in, in terms of the family, is, the family uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we often look at policymakers often look at numbers and stats, and that's important. But as a classroom teacher, as a as a person who got into this for the students, I, I make connections with my students and the stories that my students have been telling me over the years. Has has been it, it's a, it's the story, Rick. Let me put it like this: it's the story of the socioeconomic decline of this country. The the things that my urban students were were struggling with: single parent homes, no money, one meal a day. One so. People don't understand what is happening in the households for many of our children in this country. There's domestic violence. Parents are involved in questionable activities. One day, this is my first year of teaching, I had to talk a student from out from going out on the street to sell drugs. He, he was pretty straight with me. He said, look, this is what I'm doing. I said, look, that, I understand that. Take half an hour right now to fix this essay. I wasn't even his English teacher, but I knew the importance. If I could convince him that education was the way out of that environment. But now the sad thing, Rick, is that these stories are increasingly happening in the suburban schools. I was up in Rio Linda, which is, it's not a wealthy area. Drug use is out of control. Domestic violence is out of control. These kids oftentimes don't live with even their, their parents for a number of reasons. When they do, there's all sorts of violence that's happening. And when I say that, I, I want you, I want you to be liberal in your mind and, and, and go to the kinds of violence that I'd rather not bring up on this podcast. But that is happening. My students are telling me about this. So the, 
the, the challenges, the socioeconomic decline is now expanding into the suburban families. The middle class is dying in this country, Rick. It is dying. So that is a big part of what's happening. You put that stress on families and the children, well, they're children. They don't know how, they can't fix that problem and they suffer. Just like my students, when I started out 15 years ago, were suffering in, in the ghettos of Oakland. Well, now that's happening here in the suburbs of Sacramento. Wow, and yeah, we, you did share the, some of those personal stories. And I will just tell you, as a as a as a kid who grew up with, um, you know, parents that were drug addicts and drug dealers, I can tell you that that I was the exception growing up in the state of Florida. All of my my friends they had mom and dads, and they had you know three meals a day, and I was the exception. So what I hear you saying, and I can uh, validate that because I I know parents with children. I know some teenagers that I see and get a chance to talk to them on a, on a random basis. When I see these kids going to school, you don't know what is going on in their homes. But I can tell That's you right. that there's a lot of stuff on these kids' uh, shoulders. And then when they enter school, sometimes it might, it might even be a relief to get away from home just to be in school for eight hours a day, then have to go back home and, and, and face the, uh, the, the music, so to speak. Uh, well, that's, here's my Rick. That's why suicide rates went up for teenagers dramatically under the lockdown, because the home environment is oftentimes more dangerous than the school environment. That's just a fact. So, well, that's a shame. So, um, yeah. my next question is: How and why do you believe that educational in institutions now? And I just, I think I just missed it when my last kid graduated from high school. Why do you think these uh, educational institutions have become enemies of parents and children? I, in my opinion, I believe that any public institution or business that fails to deliver a viable and efficacious product is an enemy of liberty. And right now, our schools are, fa are failing 22% of all of their students. What that means is that we have a national dropout rate averaged out that's 22% across all the schools in this country. Now, there are some schools, in, usually in wealthy neighborhoods, where the dropout rate might be 10% or 5%, might even be 2%. And there are other schools, say in Chicago, that might be upwards of 70, 80% dropout rates. 80%. LA, 50, 60%. Oakland, 40, 50%. New York, depending on where you're at, dropout rates could be anywhere from 30 to upwards of 50 to 60%. So that is a, the, the, the public education system is failing and it's in that sense that that they become the enemies of liberty education as i see it is a societal and a moral promise to both parents and the children 
And we are not fulfilling this promise. We are not fulfilling the promise of a quality education that prepares students to engage in a reasonable way within this economy. And this is this is a national security issue. If we do not have the children being trained to develop new technologies, what do you think is going to happen? Who, what, what, what comes in 20 years when our, when our students can no longer develop the technology to keep this country safe? Well, I can tell you another country will have that technology and we will not. So it's a national security issue, number one. We, then it's a moral and ethical issue, number two. Because this, we, we have made a societal promise. The idea in this country is that no matter your background, you might come from a poor family. But the idea here in this country is supposed to be that no matter your background, that you'll have the opportunity to get off on that right foot. Now, we're not saying we're going to secure your future for you. We're not going to live your life for you in this country. But we cannot pretend that everybody in this country has enough money to send their kids to private schools. They just don't. We know that. We have people in our own family cannot afford to do that. So we have to be able to provide a quality education. Otherwise, what we're moving into right now is a two-pronged society. We have a five to ten percent year over year growth in private schools. And what that means, Rick, is that private school attendance goes up five to ten percent every single year. Parents are fleeing the public schools. Anybody who can afford private school is paying for private school. And it's a smart move, frankly. I, I'm not advocating that. I'm advocating for public education reform. But parents are trying to save their children and they're putting them in private schools. So there is a there is a major problem right now. And if we don't fix it, we are putting the future of this country in major jeopardy. And think of it like this. People these students who we are failing, do you think that they're going to contribute to the economy net or do you think they're going to be a net draw on the economy? Well, it, I, I think it's pretty simple way to think about it. They're going to be a net draw. We want empowered people, empowered students that know how to handle themselves, handle their own business to teach themselves the things that they need to learn to succeed. And we need school to be oriented around creating students that it's not about following rules. That's what schools are about today. They have this, we can get into that. There's a, a lot of silly stuff happening in schools. It's all oriented around following rules. Well, we don't need people that follow rules. And by the way, if you're curious about how that's how that program is turning out look at our society society today look how many people are just following rules the government says this so i do this well we need people to come up with solutions we need people to be entrepreneurs 
We need people to be solving difficult problems. So that, those are the qualities we need students to learn. And they're not learning those qualities in school. I totally understand and I totally agree with you. So you mentioned the, some of the problems. I know you're working on um, some solutions. So what are you doing to return uh, what, I would, what I would call structure and sanity to the teaching profession or the education of our children? So I am looking at this from a two-pronged approach. First of all, we do need a solution at the public level. Second, we cannot rely on the people who have created this problem to solve this problem. The people who are creating this problem, if they knew how to fix it, they would already be fixing it. They would have ideas in play. They don't have any ideas on the table. The last president to even address this was George W. Bush with No Child Left Behind, dropped our dropout rate from 40% down to 22%. There's been zero change since then. No change under Obama, no change under uh, Donald Trump, no change under Biden. So we need a solution at the government level, but it, it cannot be the kind of solution where the government solves the problem. So what might that look like? It's a hybrid approach. We have to have a hybrid approach in this country. And one of the best, most successful approaches to solving the medical problem, we had this problem actually about 80 years back with uh, Medicare. We had a whole bunch of elderly who had no medical care after the age of say 60 or 65. And they were, there were, there were a lot of inhumane things happening to the elderly because some people just cannot afford, it's just the reality of the situation, right? Some people just cannot afford to have health care past a certain age because they're not employed, they're not employable. There's lots of reasons. You know, we can, and at that time, the solution was, okay, we're going to come up with this idea called Medicare. What's innovative about Medicare is that Medicare is a single-payer solution. Medicare does not provide the health care. Medicare pays for the services that somebody needs to get their health care. Pays for the doctors, it pays for the operations, the procedures, some of the medicines. That's a hybrid approach. So the government is a single payer and the free market is the solution. Now, dare I say, this is the same approach we should be thinking about right now for education. And I call my proposal Educare because it's the same thing. My proposal is to nationalize our solution to public education. Get this out of the management of the states who have failed. Get this out of the hands of the, the local school districts who have failed. 
Now they can still participate in the Educare program. So I've created a very interesting solution here that even allows for a seamless transition. It allows if people, if the school districts want to provide the services, the, the full suite of services that I'm proposing under Educare, then they can participate. And the only requirement to participate in Educare is that you make available a suite of services. And I'm expanding the services that will be available to families. So right now, a family goes to school and what they are promised is a classroom and a teacher. Well, that's not enough. So we'll have teachers. We're gonna have higher qualified teachers, number one. Number two, we're gonna have auxiliary services like tutoring. We already have special education. We're gonna expand special education. There's a series of services that are offered within special education that are being throttled because of the lack of funding for special education. We're gonna expand special education. If a child needs services, needs modifications in the classroom to do better, then we're gonna give that those modifications to that child. We'll figure out. Our, we're gonna shift it from, uh, shift the paying the pay model from a, a per hour of attendance by the student, shift that away from that to a service provided model. So imagine if you were in a doctor's office and you walked in and uh, the, the doctor has an appointment with you. He, he charges you not for the visit, but for the minutes that you're in the, that office. That, that wouldn't make sense. A doctor could not stay in business if they were doing that. There's a, a fee for service that we are paying doctors. We're going to shift this model over to that very thing. We will be providing things like tutors for students. Some, you know, wealthy families hire tutors. I've been a tutor. I've done that. I, I ran my own tutoring business for five years on the side. Made good money doing that. And I worked exclusively for wealthy families. Wealthy families are, are paying tutors to help their students. We should have that same service. If we're gonna get rid of this 22% dropout rate, we're not gonna do it by doing more of the same. We're really gonna have to go in and really help students. We're really gonna have to go in and change the way that we deliver education to make it focus on outcomes. If a student is performing bad, we don't just give, a, give that student a D or an F and say, well, there it is, D or F. We're gonna have to say, the student's getting a D or F, how do we help that student? And we'll have somebody whose whole focus is to answer that question. These are called academic advisors. We are going to professionalize this entire education in a way that doesn't exist right now. We have a shortage of, I mean, the number of solutions, I have a whole book on this. The name of the book is called Insurgent Education, Arguments for Educare. The whole book is how we're going to solve this. What is Educare? It's a long, long list of things that we're going to do in order to fix this education system. And we're not, 
the, the focus isn't going to be that the state is going to start providing all these services, by the way. These are going to be provided just like we do in Medicare by the private sector. We're going to open it up to the private sector. It, it doesn't have to even be exclusive to the private sector. We're just going to open it up. We're going to allow private sector vendors to fulfill service requirements. We have to shift things online. We have a shortage of math and science teachers in this country. How do we fix that? There's two ways we're going to fix that, Rick, to, on a shortage problem. Number one, we have to provide digital classrooms. Now, who's going to provide that? Do, do we want the state to provide that or do we want private sector to provide that? Well, private sector can already do that with Zoom. We just need the teachers. So that's part of the problem. But we also have to pay teachers more money. If you want higher quality teachers, you got to pay them more money. That there is no other way to do this aside from get the free market involved. And free market will will figure out those rates. I I don't know what the exact rate would be for a high, a high flying math or physics teacher, but reasonably it should be well over a hundred thousand dollars. We have a mag massive shortage uh, right now. Many math and physics teachers get paid uh, $40,000, give or take five, depending on the state they're in. That's unacceptable. We cannot hire and attract the right talent to solve this problem unless we are paying more money because they have other, these are smart people. They have other choices. So we have to get real and we cannot pretend that the only way to solve this problem is for people to sacrifice their entire economic future, which is kind of the problem that I'm in. I cannot, I've, I've put my family in jeopardy by even being a teacher. That's unacceptable. If you want somebody to be in this business who can really teach, who really knows their material, you're going to have to compensate them. Teach, and, and so teacher unions, listen up. I, I like teacher unions. I was in a teacher union. I've been part of a teacher union. I don't have anything against teacher unions, but the idea that a math teacher of 10 years experience is going to get paid the same as an English teacher of 10 years experience is ludicrous. That would be like going to a doctor and your neurosurgeon gets paid the same as a, as a GP, mm -hmm. general practitioner. No one in their right mind would want an underpaid neurosurgeon operating on them or a cardiovascular surgeon. No one in their right mind would want to, would sign up to go to a hospital where they are intentionally underpaying cardiovascular surgeons. And yet we do this every day in the education system. We have to change the way that we think about this. All of this I outline in the book, Insurgent Education. It's a long read, but I've been in every single sector of education. I've had the chance to work in every sector. I've worked in public schools, charter schools, private schools. I've toured private school, charter schools, public schools. I've consulted for them. I've set up new, new schools. I've innovated a new curriculum. I'm a curriculum designer. My, I, I just happen to be in every sector. I, I'm an, also, I'm an expert test prep trainer. So when I talk about providing tutoring to students, I, I, I personally, myself, personally, 
have well over 50 students that I've personally trained who've gotten perfect scores on SAT tests. So there is a way to train these tests and these tests are important, but I cannot repair the damage that the public schools have done. What I found out is I could reason, always get a 50 point increase no matter the student on, on these test scores. If, if, I, if a student is better prepared, I can get about a hundred point uh, differential. Look, the, the problem is deep and, and it is hard to summarize all the solutions. That's why I wrote a book on this. And I do think that it is a solvable problem. Look, the model is right in front of our faces. It's a hybrid model. In the transition, so as first we have to create Educare, has to be a national policy. We have to understand that that this is a, a sincere, it's probably the biggest national crisis that we're facing. It's a bigger threat than any other foreign foreign threat at the moment. Because while we may be focusing on the foreign threats right now, 20 years time from here to then, we will be even less able to defend ourselves and defend our values and defend our way of life in the, the panoply of the world if we have the next generation even less prepared than they are today. And that's what we're looking at. So we have, for our economic viability, for our freedom, we have to fix education. And the way to do it is not to dump more money into a broken system. It's not to ask the people who have already messed up the system to, to solve the system. We have to have a, a whole new approach. And Educare is the first policy that's been put on the table in my lifetime that's an exhaustive and substantial and meaningful solution. I'm not going to say it's the best. Rick, but it's the only one on the table. I'd love to debate another solution, but right now there is no other solution. They don't even have a plan to fix anything. So we, we need to adopt a, a solution. And right now mine's the only one in, in town. It's the only one on the table and that's Educare. So we, we need to get this this funding for for students to not be localized on the hours that they attend because you can't you cannot run a business a a private sector business on hours attended that might be fine for public schools that's not that can't happen so we have to do a fee for service just like medicare does simple solution and we cannot keep our funding localized to zip codes, which is how it is today. And they do this in Chicago. It's all based on zip codes, all based on property taxes. And what, it, what that is doing is wealthy people, or not even wealthy, upper income, upper middle income families are getting a better education than lower income families because they have high, they live in a zip code with higher property taxes. And those property taxes go to fund better schools. And that is a disaster because as I, as we started out this conversation, what's happening now 
with the, the destruction of the middle class in this country, the socioeconomic decline is real. It's, it's happening quickly. And these, these suburban schools are dying. They're dying a miserable death. So we, wow. we can no longer keep this focused on, on zip codes and property taxes. We've got to nationalize this. This is a national emergency. It won't be in 20 years time. We will be out competed by China. They have more people than us. Their education system, while not perfect, is producing just by numbers, more people of higher intelligence than our system. Do we really want to go to war? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, not a literal war, but do we really want to go to economic combat at that kind of disadvantage? The big reason why the United States is in the position that we are in to today is because we had, past tense, had the best education system in the world in the 1950s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And those people, that education system trained all the entrepreneurs who have been making the billions and billions of dollars, creating the tech companies. But if we don't have that top training system, and now another country, China, has a more people than us with a better quality education outcome, just by numbers, it doesn't even have to be by percentage, just by numbers, we're going to get outcompeted. And that's just the beginning of the problem, as far as I'm concerned. So this is a national catastrophe that is happening, that is unfolding, but it is, it is solvable. And we, the, the very, the best, most highly rated, uh, medical insurance program that we've got in this country right now is, is Medicare. So not Medicaid. Let's, let's distinguish that. Medicare at the national level, Medicaid, one of the worst at the state level. And guess who runs our education system? States. Now, if we were to do a universal healthcare, and a universal education program, universal educare. What that would do, I don't know if you know this, but the states, 45% of all states, all states budgets, all states, you go to Mississippi, you go to Missouri, you go to Alabama, you go to Nevada, 45% of every state's budget goes to Medicaid. For another 45% goes to education, the schools, the states, are clearly incapable of solving the education problem. So let's, let's remove that burden from them. That would be a 45% state tax reduction in every state in this country. And if we do universal health care, that's another 45% state reduction, state tax reduction. That'd be overall 90%. But if we just focus on education, that's a 45% state tax reduction. And my, my bet is that if we take the same amount of money we're paying to the states and try to equalize that and pay a, a national tax in the same way that we pair, we have a, a medic, Medicare tax, payroll tax, we could do something similar for Educare and get this out of the state hands. And again, we don't want 
the government, either state or federal, providing the solutions here. Now, if the county, if a, if a small county wants to uh, participate in Educare, they can. So I'm not saying let's shut down the public schools. That would be insane. So I've thought this stuff through pretty well. We're, what I'm proposing is we just shift the funding. And I think we can get higher funding levels. But right now, a student in California gets paid around $5,500. I think it's maybe $5,700 per year. And that's with full attendance. So if they don't attend all the time, then the school gets less and less money for, for less attendance. So right now, that's what California students get. If you go to Massachusetts, I think it's around uh, ten or twelve thousand dollars a year. Wow. Now, Woo. there's a there's a, there's a few studies that are out that show that once you pass, a, and, and it's, it's somewhere between eight to twelve thousand dollars. Once you pass that amount, the money no longer matters. So if you if you spend twenty five thousand dollars versus twelve, there's no difference. We Rick, we don't have to spend twenty five thousand dollars per student. That's the beautiful answer to this problem. We can spend around ten to $12,000 per student, just like we do in Massachusetts, but we do it here in California. And we don't do it by raising the taxes on Californians. We're going to reduce state tax and then offset that with a national payroll tax, just like we do for Medicare. And I'll bet we can deliver. A, it, it won't even be on a... It's not even a per student... Some students don't need twelve thousand dollars, Rick. Mm -hmm. So if we if we shift over to a per uh, fee for service model, some students just need quality teachers. So we could probably cover that with around seven, eight thousand dollars, roughly speaking. Some students might need quality teachers and a little bit of tutoring. So throw in another, whatever the tutoring costs are. It could be 500 bucks, could be $1,000. Some students might need additional services because they might need a little tutoring, but maybe they have some learning disability. Maybe they, have, maybe they need some remediation. So we have programs for that. And again, it's all fee for service. So it's not about allocating. Here's the bottom line. Let me put it like this. The schools that participate, the public schools that participate, they can participate in Educare. They can write, they can say, here's how much uh, we need to be paid to cover our SPED services at the county level. Okay, we'll pay that. We will pay the SPED services, what needs to get paid. So the only requirement is that for a school to participate is that the school will not only provide all the services that they're providing right now, but they're gonna provide the full suite of services that students would uh, are authorized to get under the Educare policy. And that would include some new things like tutoring so that students have the opportunity to be prepared for an SAT test. Just because you grow up in a certain neighborhood or a certain income level doesn't mean that you don't have the right to get some type of test prep training. So we can provide that. I love it. I love it. And it seems like you, you've done your homework on this subject, and uh, I, I definitely see the, the advantages 
as you compare Educare to the Medicare system, and and definitely the not like you said, not the Medicaid system, or here in California it's called Medi-Cal. So, uh, right. as you can, can you close us out with what do you need, and from whom do you need help from to launch Educare, and then close us out with how people can contact you uh, to get more information or provide you support. Yes. There are, there are two things, and I mentioned this at, a bit ago. There's a two-pronged approach that we need. The policy, the national policy is just one layer, so let me talk about that first. That's Educare for All. You can find that at educareforall.org. So that's E-D-U-C-A-R-E-F-O-R-A-L-L.org. I am building a team of people, and specifically I need politicians, I need lawyers so we can draft this legislation. I need politicians to push the legislation, to talk about this, to make it their number one priority, because it is our, it should be our, every politician's number one priority, frankly. Um, lawyers to write this stuff and people to fund this development. Lawyers cost money. I know I've had to hire them before. So, uh, that's what the funding would be for, is to assemble a team of people to get this done and to push this. That's on educareforall.org. If you want to have, if you want to learn more about what Educare is, I have a book that you can buy. It's ten dollars nine ninety nine on Amazon in paperback form. It's nineteen ninety nine in hardback. I'd make almost no money on this book. I'm not trying to make money on this book. Okay, I have prices just basically so I can cover the cost of printing. Okay, buy the book, read the book. If you don't have even $10, I will email you the book. I will email it to you for free. All right, that's, I didn't write the book to make money. I wrote the book to solve a problem. So the book outlines how we solve this problem, how to professionalize the teacher class, how to increase the quality of teachers. That's all in the book. I cover a lot of topics. I try to cover the whole gamut of topics in education inside that book. Okay? So that's, that's one part. But there's a second part that I, I don't think I brought up in, in the cafe. And that is a private sector solution. One of the big problems right now in the private sector, in terms of education, if you're a parent, is trying to find out what are my options. Where is a good tutor? How do I even find a good tutor? There's most of the information is difficult to find. If you're on Facebook, it's a biz, overly busy place to go. So I have created my own social media network called Poly.School. That's P-O-L-Y dot school. W-W-W dot poly dot school. It is a social media platform just for educators, just for people who provide for businesses that provide the services. And that's any education service. Could be educational software. Could be a, somebody who's providing disability services for students with disabilities. SPED services. People who specialize in helping students with special education needs. Services 
like tutoring services. How do I find a good tutor? So that is a private sector solution just to, to help people have a, a single place where you can go, log into, you have a feed just like Facebook. So it's like Facebook, but just for education, just to find the things you can follow businesses that you like on poly.school. So if you're a software company, you put your school, you put your, your service up, create your own page, put that up on poly.school and anybody in the world can follow your software company now and get updates. And instead of having to compete against the noise that's in Twitter, that's in Facebook, now you have a single destination where you can look just for education stuff. That's all that poly, poly.school is. You want to find schools in your neighborhood. Good luck trying to do a search on that. What are my private school options in name the city? <laughs> the difficulty in finding the answer to that is, is very high. And in terms of, of really, it's just a signal to noise ratio that I'm trying to solve here. When we switch over to Educare, because I'm hopeful that this will be a, a movement that we can start pushing and get the word out. We will need to be able, parents will need to be able to find out what are their options. Maybe they want a math book to supplement what's happening in the schools. How do they find that? Is there a publisher of high quality books that they like? They can follow that person on poly.school. Are they looking for tutors? I tutor Sacramento. They do a search for that. People have rankings. So it's a little bit like Yelp. Every, every service gets ranked by the consumers. People who've actually used the product. So you can find quality tutors, real tutors, not tutors that are just online and warehoused in, on these uh, small tutoring platforms. And get the wider diversity of options that are available. We, we're, we are going to need a strong and robust private sector solution that is much more vibrant and active than what we've got today. So that's why I created Poly.School. All righty. Well, I tell you what, you gave a, a lot of information to people. And Arpin, I want to thank you for your time. I will put those two links on the pot, in the pot, podcast description box. And that's uh, educareforall.org and www.poly.schools. Those links will be in the dot, podcast. Go ahead. Dot school. Dot school. They're without the S. That's www.poli.school. No S. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. I'll, I'll and you the link, Rick. Yes, yes. And I want to thank you for your time. And I'm sure we'll be talking more because uh, you only provide, I mean, on this, this short segment that we did, you only provided a small dose of what we talked about two days ago, and uh, we'll see if you if we could talk about more of the things that are affecting you know schools and our and parents and teachers and and our country. So I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, have a great weekend, and uh, this link will be available across eight platforms and. 
uh, in about probably an hour and a half. So thank you very much for the information. Take care. Thanks, Rick. All right. Bye-bye.